On this episode of Snow the Goalie, the only Flyers podcast, we are joined by TSN's Frank Saravalli. We're talking hockey coming back January 13th, what the league is going to do, how it will balance COVID, and most importantly, how do your team, your town, the orange and black, the Philadelphia Flyers, stack up against the rest of the division and the conference? We get into that and more on this episode of Snow the Goalie, the only Flyers podcast. Without further ado, let's get to it. Hi, my name is Ali Vigneault, coach of the Flyers. Hey, I'm Travis Konechny. Hi, I'm Paul Holmgren. Hi, I'm Matt Niskanen. Hey, I'm Scott Lawton. Hi, I'm Joel Farabee. Hello, this is Scott Gordon. Hi, this is Bob Clark. And you're, you're listening, listening to, to Snow the Goalie. 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 Twas mere weeks from the start of hockey and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. Ladies and gentlemen, hockey, hockey's coming back. We have waited, we have begged, we have prayed to both the old gods and the new. Anthony Sanfilippo has been on a fast for the last few weeks, just waiting, hoping. He thought a hunger strike would help bring hockey back. And here we are, we've got hockey. It is finally, finally, finally here. And who joins us? It's not just anyone. It's a man who I believe a year ago, we dubbed the international man of mystery. Frank Saravalli of TSN, formerly here, local guy, is here to break it all down, how it all happened, and what to, what, how to make sense of what's about to happen. Frank, thanks for joining the show. Glad to be back, guys. Anthony, so, it's okay to have you here as well. I yeah, I guess it is. Um, and, and Russell, Anthony, not- if, you were, if you were considering a hunger strike, by the way, good thing, like me, you got a little extra. Like, you could have <laughs> waited it out if there were – you know, some issues that we had going on with the different local health authorities that yeah. we couldn't play. Yeah, the problem, the problem is is that it's because it's Christmas week, we've been baking cookies, and Ooh. we had about a 1,000 cookies on my table yesterday. That'll um, get you. Yeah, we brought some to the family, but I have about 12 tins of cookies that are sitting in the cupboard, just about you know 15 feet to my right. And uh, it's just so tempting to get up and go over there and start picking on them again, you know. So, do we need to send you some locks. Top, what's what that? I'm sorry. Three? Do we need to send you some locks to like keep I, those pins closed? <laughs> yes, I need them locked. Are you asking for top three? I, Christmas I want top cookies? three. Top three before we get into hockey. Top three Christmas cookies that either you're responsible for or you look forward to from somebody else in the family. Go. Well, it's uh, number one for me are always, and this is an Italian thing, but uh, are always the the regat cookies. I don't know if, if you guys, if your families make those. Oh, yeah. But make them out of the, they're like doughy and then they put a little bit of icing on top. Yep. It's, they're delicious. So they're number one for me automatically. Um, I love Bitzel's. Um, although they're available all times of the year, it just seems that like we really enjoy them at Christmas. It's the only time of year I ever eat them. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, number three are, we, they, we call them nut balls. And they're little, they're little, um, they're little balls and they're, and they're uh, powdered with powdered sugar on the outside. Uh, again, nice doughy. Um, they got a little uh, piece of um, crushed walnut inside. I'm a big fan of those as well. So they're my top three. Frank? I, I don't have a ranking. Um, to be honest, I'm actually a really big fan of cookie dough. I don't so much love the cookie. I, I more like and appreciate the dough. So you're like lick the spoon kind of guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but I also it, – it's – it's simplistic in nature, but I love those like tubes of dough that they sell like from Pillsbury or something with the sugar cookies where you just cut them and then put them on the, like I could eat like half a roll if I wanted to. 
and I probably have. The only thing saving me, guys, uh, one year ago, actually, right around this time, I was diagnosed with celiac. And so I'm no gluten. So I've had like, I've been struggling to find no gluten or gluten free cookie dough that I can eat. They actually do sell it. I found it at a movie theater, strangely enough, once. Wow. But it's out there. And I'm more dough than cookie. I like the like gooiness. The gooiness of it. Yeah. 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 I, I, it's interesting. You know, and Frankie, I, I know that you and I have had uh, many beers in our time. How, how, how has switching to the gluten free beer? <laughs> been for you and, and is it does it have the the same kind of taste or just doesn't quite play, i've actually know, totally out? cut out beer which, oh really have um, you okay i don't know if you tried yeah, out the gluten free ones whiskey bourbon vodka tequila anything anything hard i'm into good for you that a guy how about you russ you got your uh, favorite cookies yeah it's the ricotta it has to be so yeah. we we do both the ricotta that has the anise in it yeah and then um the variation of that, the Slovak variation, doesn't have the anise in it. it just you make them into chocolate chip ricotta cookies, wow. uh, and then the th the third is is whatever anybody brings to the house. I am an equal opportunity <laughs> lover of all things uh, culinary. I am a uh, a confectioner's dream, so uh, I love it all. Frank, that's I'm awful. sorry about the beer. That's that's a shame. Well, enough. He's yeah. gone, but he's gone whiskey though. I mean, yeah, he's he's refined. I've really gotten into some like bourbon, some really good bourbons and whiskeys, yeah. and I actually am just finishing. Um, you guys follow Wright Thompson? I'm reading his book. Yeah, he spent a year with the family that is responsible for Pappy Van Winkle, and so I've never actually gotten my hands on a bottle of Pappy. But reading this book, like I'm basically drooling every night as he's writing about this incredible whiskey and bourbon. That's awesome. I've become uh, over the last year or so, I've really d dove into old fashions. Yeah. I really like drinking old fashions and especially the ones where you go into the bar that have the, uh, the little steamer and they can, mm -hmm. they can steam the old fashioned before they, they serve. And you get you. one of those really cool ice balls. Yeah. And uh, you know, they just do it. Some places really do it right. I actually miss, I think it closed in the city. It was time 13th uh -huh. and Sansom that place. They had some tremendous old fashions. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, Russ, gotta, we got to get you. I, so you're, you're still I got, young. No, yet. listen, you're, no, no, no. I got, I got into old fashions. Wait, wait. So a year ago, I got into old fashions, and I made them for my family, for my parents, and then my in-laws. And my mother-in-law complained that it wasn't sweet enough because she wanted a, 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 I guess, a much more heavy dose of the simple syrup. So she took the best bourbon I had at the time, which I had on like a special shelf. It wasn't meant to be consumed uh, by anyone other than me. Well, certainly and not she by took her. It, yeah. And I, I took it and I watched her dump the remainder of that in with like, I think it was half a cup of simple syrup and it just killed it. And I told her that I was almost as horrified as the time she took all of the leftover Thanksgiving turkey and said it was an accident. So she's got two strikes. She has two. What happens on the you, third strike? I don't know. You I don't know. <laughs> no, I love my wife. So it's not that. I just think we might just have to invite my father-in-law, brother-in-law my wife's aunt over, but my mother-in-law is going to have to stay at home, sit this one out or a tone, bring me bourbon and a turkey or bourbon glazed turkey. There we there go. That'll, go. that'll fix there everything. So, all right. So I'm, I'm sure that people tuned in because they wanted to hear about our cookies and our alcohol preferences. But um, Frank, we, we talked about Anthony and I, I think for a month and a half or so about the initial January 1st timeline that Gary Bettman had talked about 
from pretty much the time I think the return to play had even gone into effect, it was always that was going to be the next target date. Were you surprised that January 13th is the day and that they didn't wait until February or March, especially given the fact that the vaccines are starting to roll out and you would think that owners would want to increase the likelihood of having fans in the arenas in big numbers from the get-go? I'm not surprised because the reason why they needed to get rolling is because their time was already getting short. Their first priority was to make sure that they can get this season finished in a time that they can begin the next one in normal fashion, because they're hoping that the vaccine will be prevalent by then that at some point there'll be some kind of herd immunity that's in effect, thanks to the vaccine and that you can have as normal a season from both a timeline and sort of normal hockey perspective that we're used to seeing starting in October, but also mostly for revenue reasons, because if you can get back to having fans in the building, you know, in, in big numbers and you can put up a big five plus billion dollar revenue number that that's how much more quickly the players are going to pay back the owners with the way that this financial setup works that that makes the most sense. And also there's so many wrinkles involved here and the Olympics factor into two parts of it. One is you needed to wrap this season up in time if you could, because NBC has the Olympics in Tokyo in July. I believe that starts July 23rd. So even with the Stanley Cup final ending July 15th, as it's now scheduled to do, you're butting up really close against that July 23rd or 22nd Olympic start date in Tokyo. So that's your TV partner who this year with revenue being short is a significant driver for all league revenue. And then the other part is you really want to start your next season as early as you can, because you need to take that three week pause in February for the 2022 winter Olympics in Beijing, because you've already agreed with the NHLPA to send your players there. Now that's pending an agreement with the IOC, but still, those are two significant milestones that the NHL needed to shape their season around. And I, you know, this, they were running out of clock really is, is how it, how it was working. They needed to figure out how to get this season in, in a respectable fashion, uh, which still has, you know, keeps the traditions of the cup and keeps everything else moving and keeps the NHL in the spotlight while also satisfying some of those other needs. So, one of the other things, Frank, that really has kind of um, surprised me as, as far as I, mean, I knew they had to get an announcement out, right? And we had heard for a few weeks now, I think you first reported it a couple weeks back uh, about this January 13th start date, 56 game season, uh, all games being played within their division, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things I, that I was a little surprised by is that the league would, that would put this out as here is our plan without really getting Canada's provincial health people to, to sign off on it. Um, what, is, what do you hear is the latest there? And is there, is there kind of a plan B uh, if, in fact, the uh, Canadian provinces are like, no, we're not letting people travel in, into the, our province? Well, the, to answer your first question, this was going to come up anyway, had they worked out this plan in, in early November or not you still could have gotten to this point at Christmas and the provincial health authorities could have balked and said, Hey, look at these numbers skyrocketing. Look at these lockdowns. You know, we're not comfortable with you playing games and we're pulling the plug. I mean, that's really what before everyone ended up 
putting their season on pause last year in March. If you remember, it was like, well, what happens in San Jose? What happens in Columbus? All these different markets, Los Angeles. We were all kind of waiting to see what happened with that. And so those local health authorities in every market, not just in Canada, still have a chance to wreak incredible havoc on the plans that the NHL has laid out. But the, the truth is the NHL is hoping and they remain optimistic and confident, in fact, that they can work something out with these health authorities, but there's no guarantee. And I think the big thing is, unfortunately, it comes down to optics, as most politics do. There's, you know, if we're speaking frank, and I've seen the travel protocols, these are going to be incredibly locked down. The NHL players are going to have zero fun on the road this year. There's, you're not allowed to leave your hotel. You're sequestered on a floor with your, the rest of your team. All of your meals are in your team hotel. You're not allowed to go out for a walk um, in most cases. And you're definitely not allowed out to go to bars, restaurants, shopping, anything. So it's your three places you can go are the practice rink, the game rink, and the um, and your hotel. And that's it. And so they're chartering in and chartering out. In these airports, they're in private terminals. They're never actually coming in contact with the general public. So there's no minimal, I'd say minimal or non-existent public health risk. Then you're dealing with the optics. And so now... You, Originally, when this all started, not to go into too much detail, but the provincial health authorities were all negotiating independently with the NHL and the PA. And now instead, they've gotten on a group call together. And what you see is groupthink starting to happen. If British Columbia holds firm over here and they're saying we're not going to let NHL players or games happen in our province, then you've got other people in other provinces saying, well, we don't want to be the lenient one. We don't want to be the one that lets players in. So why don't we reconsider and think more along the lines of what BC is doing? And so now it's almost creating this all or nothing unfortunate circumstance where it seems like, and I don't have a crystal ball, but it seems like they're either going to go one way or the other, say, yes, we're going to allow this to happen or not. And so the plan B and plan C is they could potentially set up a hub in Edmonton or somewhere where they get cooperation from the provincial health authorities, which players are going to hate because they've already spent all that time away, or they're going to move them to the U.S. for the season, which players are also going to hate. Their kids are in school. They've got to move. And if you've got to have your family come with you, and if you're concerned about COVID, you could actually, these provincial health authorities could be putting the players in a more dangerous quote unquote situation by having them move somewhere in the US where restrictions aren't as strict and they could be making these families susceptible to more. So I don't understand where the griping comes from given the protocol that we've outlined, but look, this is 2020. Uh, politics seem to be wherever, everything's political. It doesn't matter what it is. It becomes political and this is no different. Is, is there a real risk that this could delay the hopeful start of the season on the 13th? I don't think so. I haven't gotten an answer yet, but my guess is there's some kind of deadline, a hard and fast, hey, sign off or don't. We're fine either way. And if you don't, we're, this is the date we're pulling the plug and we have to move these teams or do something else. So one of the things that I think came up in the last week that certainly got a, a few people, I guess, upset was the idea that maybe the NHL looks at getting their players vaccinated via uh, like private channels and that potentially 
the optics that you mentioned before, the blowback that could come to the league as a result of having players vaccinated ahead of, say, some frontline workers could be bad for the league. The flip side of that is, as things continue to go further and further into a lockdown and people look for an escape, there is something to the mental health aspect of millions of people in North America, at least. If the idea is that eventually maybe they do have to relocate the Canadian teams into the U.S., does that then give the the league almost a, a little bit of a, a, a leniency or something from the public that says we're vaccinating the players because they have to move out of country. And by the way, we're going to vaccinate their families too. Does that, does that move the needle at all? I said needle and there's a vaccine unintended, but uh, does that change anything? Does that change the calculus of this? Or do you think that regardless trying to prioritize vaccinations via a private channel could blow back on the league in a negative way? Well, I think anytime anyone's trying to secure vaccinations at this point, private channel, public channel, whatever it is, there's going to be blowback is, you know, short of being a frontline worker or someone extremely susceptible or uh, being elderly, um, you know, that's, that's going to continue no matter what. And so I think the NHL was, my guess is, was no different than any other sports league or major corporation trying to get a line on something. Uh, And this was probably going back months and months before we even had an idea that the vaccine would be available in late 2020. Um, My guess is that at the same time they were having conversations with testing companies that they were saying, hey, uh, if you you hear about a vaccine, we'd be interested. And they're probably paying, if they get it, a significant markup. Um, That's how the private market works. That's how capitalism works. Um, So I don't know that there's anything that can be done other than, you know, the ethicists that would be complaining. And I think it's important to point out when we're talking about the vaccine, the NHLPA has made it very clear to the NHL that they cannot mandate vaccine use by players. They can recommend or ask that they take it, but there's, um, there can be no mandate of that. And that's because the player, this was a non-starter for the players because they're so cautious and careful about exactly what they're putting in their bodies that I think when you look at just some stories that we've seen locally in Philly, um, where you see a story in the Inquirer that says a poll of, you know, healthcare workers in the region, 30% are saying we are not interested in being first in line for the vaccine. We'd rather see some more results first. I think a lot of people around the country, around the world are potentially skeptical about exactly what they're putting in their body. It's really a fascinating time, Frank. And, and, and you look at some other things that could come into play here. I mean, you, you talk about relocating the, the seven Canadian teams, but then you have a situation like you have in San Jose, and who knows um, what the situation is going to be in Southern California. Um, but at least for now, the Sharks are the only one who are temporarily um, you know, homeless in the sense. Uh, and I think they have to do training camp in Arizona. Um, it, which is, by the way, has worked out so beautifully for Doug Wilson, the Sharks GM. He actually owns a house in Scottsdale, and so does his son, who's one of their other front office people. So, like, they don't even have to move. Like, it's just like, hey, <laughs> we're going to Scottsdale for a bit. I, I wonder if that had part of part, uh, a lot to do with where they ended up, huh? <laughs> uh, well, I think to be fair, not to give anyone too much credit, it's a copycat sports league. They saw the NFL go to Arizona the 49ers. It's yeah. just easy to, to plug the sharks there as well. 
Yeah, makes sense. But um, but you, you know, you look at a situation like that, and you look at all these teams that might be, um, you know, playing somewhere other than where they're used to, and then yet at the same time, you have some organizations who are in certain areas of the country who are saying, not only are we going to let you play in your home arena, but we're going to have fans. Like I think you know, you're you're going to have fans in in Texas for sure. Uh, Dallas Florida Stars play- said. 5,000 fans they're hoping for opening night. Yeah, it's crazy. And then Florida, um, I think, also is going to have an opportunity to do it. Um, Is there some kind of uncertainty about how – I mean, you know, you look at – is there going to be some kind of revenue share based off that? Because some teams are going to be making more money than others, especially since they're – you know, and some are not even going to be playing in their hometowns, possibly, potentially. Yeah, I mean, that that's a good question about the revenue share. I don't know exactly how that works, but – I mean, theoretically, it should be addressed. And in some ways it is because there is a revenue share that exists where the top 10 teams pay a part to the bottom 10 teams anyway. Um, But it's crazy to see the difference in each market. Like you said, like, you know, and I think the NHL can stick handle around one or two teams. Like if you're dealing with the Sharks and let's say uh, British Columbia doesn't come around, they can take the Canucks and move them somewhere else temporarily uh but i think at a certain point it becomes too difficult if it's four five six seven eight teams that you're saying look we gotta stick handler we can't stick handle around this we need to set up hubs well they've been doing a lot of that work in the background you know even as as recently as the last few days before they were totally sure that they were going to be able to pull off starting in 31 arenas they've been working on the idea of hub cities or hybrid hub cities. Vegas was going to be one. I'm told uh, Newark, New Jersey was going to potentially be one. Uh, Columbus was another one that was on the list. I think uh, Edmonton was the one in Canada they were looking at, even though the players would rather be in Toronto. Um, You know, so those were all things talked about. And in fact, they might ultimately have to go back to that and go to that hub city and, you know, the, the word of the day has sort of been nimble. We need to be nimble and flexible. They've been, you know, intent on doing that. Um, and sorry for the banging and the, the noise. I, I'm sure you hear that. It's driving it's me crazy. I'm, I have a ton of work going on in my house and I can't find a quiet place. So it's all good. Don't worry about it. I apologize. <laughs> um, another thing well, that, he, it, go ahead, Russ, uh, before I get, cause I was going to kind of transition to something else, but go ahead. You, if you have one more question on this. So just conceptually, if you're a player that hasn't gotten access to the vaccine, um, you're fine conceptually playing in arenas that have little to no fan attendance whatsoever. And then you are supposed to go to, say, Florida or Dallas, where there are going to be 5,000 fans. And you say, you know what? That's mass exposure that I want nothing to do with. What's a player to do who doesn't want to play in specific arenas? Do they have the option to opt out of that game specifically? Is that something where one of the taxi squad players is given the night? It's just kind of a hush-hush thing between the player and the organization? Or is it like too bad, sport? You're getting paid to play. You've got to play. I think they would hope that you would just choose to opt out for the season. Because like, who's to say that the numbers don't get worse or um, in certain places they lessen their restrictions instead of uh, make them more stringent? Um, so that's the part that everyone's going through right now, um, is trying to decide whether you're opting in and opting out. And actually, if you look, you know, just paging through the transition rules that were passed in GMs yesterday on Sunday, 
they were essentially the longest part of it was the opt-out. It was incredibly detailed and worded. And the reason for that is they want to make sure that if you decide to opt out voluntarily, and let's say you don't have an, you know, an underlying health condition and you don't have someone in your family that would be considered high risk, well, then in that case, you wouldn't get paid and they have the option to toll your contract so that you'd be in the same position this time next year um, in order to, you know, essentially preserve that uh, and not have a player opt out unless he really needs to. That's what they want to try and force you to do is play if you believe you can. Um, where I wanted to transition to a little bit, Frank, is, is you know, we're recording this on the 21st. Um, if things go as the NHL would like it to go, um, training camp will start for uh, at least for seven teams next week. And then the rest of the league, um, a few days later, uh, you know, looking at it, there are still 10 teams that are over the salary cap. There's a lot of, there's still some free agents out there. There's a lot of things that will have to happen. Is this next week to 10 days going to become kind of insane for, especially for guys like you who are tracking this on a daily basis? It is. And you know, it's funny because in a normal calendar year, this is the time of year where you like, you're like, you can catch a breath. They have that holiday roster freeze that goes in, no trades, no waivers. Then there's no games, the 24th, 25th, and 26th. And you can kind of put your feet up. Except for me, I'm usually going to world juniors at this point. Um, And it's amazing. Like it's going to be a flurry. Like you mentioned, like the list of things that need to be tackled from the Tampa Bay lightning and their situation, they've got to shed between 10 and $11 million off their cap. Um, you know, even little things, that's a big one. Then you've got little things like what are the Washington capitals do to replace Henrik Lundqvist? Every team needs to carry three goalies. Um, you know, that's become a significant hole, especially when you were trying to rely on Ilya Samsonov, you've got the free agents, Mike Hoffman, this guy is seventh, I believe in the league league in the last six years in terms of goals he's unsigned eric hall is the top center left um some some veteran presence and savvy and a guy like Corey perry so you've got free agents then you've got injuries you've got teams that have ltir space that could potentially do something with it the st louis blues alex steen um can't play any longer you've got oscar clefbaum in edmonton who may or may not be ready and teams haven't been able to make a lot of these decisions because specifically as it relates to injuries, because no one knew when the season was going to start. It's you can't fill that space. And then all of a sudden, Oh, Hey, the season's pushed back to March 1st and this guy's ready. And all of a sudden we traded for this guy and now we're hooped. So uh, a lot of GMs have been waiting and they wanted to see what the cap rules would be like, what the transition rules would be like. And I think now what everyone's guarding against is what are these, we just talked about the opt-outs our team's going to try and bend the opt-out rules to effectively circumvent the cap. And so I think that's what everyone's curious about at the moment. And when you say bend the opt-out rules, is that, are you suggesting that maybe, you know, they'll work with a, a guy to, to not play and still get them, still get them their money and say, Hey, we weren't going to have you on the roster. Uh, but rather than, you know, you going through waivers and have to go to the AHL or whatever, we'll still pay you because you can get paid as an opt-out player, but just not, you know, pay you to not play. Essentially. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure, I'm sure there were a lot of, um, capologists spending a lot of time reading through the legalese on those six or seven pages in, in the document 
trying to understand if there would be any breathing room for a loophole. And I personally don't see one, but, you know, I know that there were players with high cap hits that are being sparingly used or are clearly out of their team's picture in terms of use or usage. And they were saying, wait a second, is there a way that I could get paid for this and not have to work? And so I think the answer to that is no, but I'm sure that a lot of people were thinking about it. Interesting. Interesting. Especially because I know that the, um, didn't the league um, uh, offer during the negotiation period here uh, a couple of weeks back, um, the, the ability to have uh, those, uh, what was, what are those contracts? What were you Compliance buyouts. Compliance buyouts. Yeah, yeah. Compliance buyouts. And then and the, so I guess the PA that was actually that was actually offered by the NHLPA. Oh, it was the PA is the other way around. Okay. Because teams and GMs were complaining of lack of salary cap flexibility with the cap being flat. Right. And so they said, This is like ridiculous. I have guys screwing in drywall <laughs> below me. What are you getting basement. done over there? I, you getting I'm, a I'm rink getting, installed? Like what's going on? I, I I wish. And by the way, I was like dreaming while we had some snow and some cold temps finally, I was dreaming of getting an outdoor rink set up in my backyard. It's not going to work. It's just too warm here. Right. Um, but yeah, I'm getting my basement finished and I have some other work going on in my house. I'm getting a shower replaced. Like there's guys everywhere and I just can't like they They just have to be right underneath me at this exact moment. <laughs> and it's just driving me crazy. I'm losing my train of thought, but the compliance buyouts, the PA said, okay, you want cat flexibility we'll give you a compliance buyout that you can use or buyouts as many as you want, but you'd have to take that money that's being bought out and it would have to count against the owner's share of the 50 50. And in a year in which the owners are paying out so much more than 50 50, I think the latest revenue projection is somewhere around 1.8 billion. It was 4.9 uh, you know, last year and then with the shortened season, it ended up at 3.9. It's a huge hit. So I think the projections 1.8. If you do the math, the players are entitled to a 50% split. They're half of the pie. They're going to be paid something like 88% of the pie this year. So owners are paying out so much more than they're bringing in to then take those compliance buyouts and add that on top of the amount that uh, is being shifted. It, it just wasn't something that the owners were willing to budge on. Uh, final thing I want to get from you, Frank, because I know uh, you, you're, you want to get going, especially with all the work being done, it's distracting you. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, they, 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 looks like the division realignment and they set a thing in where it's the top four in each division. And then you're going to play through your division in the playoffs, kind of the, the old school way, the way it was back in the, uh, uh, in the eighties, I guess, um, where you came out of your division first and then someone else in your conference and then the Stanley cup final. But, you know, in looking at it, once again, the East is to me a really competitive, you, you know, you, div- division, you may have some better teams and other divisions that are a little bit more top heavy, but when you think about only four teams going to the playoffs and you have, Boston, the Islanders, the Flyers, the Penguins, and the Capitals, not to mention uh, an up-and-coming Rangers probably, team. Yeah, throw the Rangers in there. Yeah, um, you're really looking at trying to, to take two teams out of that mix. Yeah, and they, not going to make the playoffs. It's kind of yeah. crazy. It's nuts. Um, I And I, I don't – there's no workaround to that because you can't just say – first off, there aren't conferences this year, so it's not like you could say, hey, we're going to have a wild card here and – 
you know, maybe you get five teams in, in the East, it has to stay that way. I think just local health wise to try and keep the same teams in the same group as long as you can. But it's like, you know, it's like murderers row. It really yeah. like, seriously, there's not. And, and like, you look at the changes, even Buffalo made this off season. I mean, th- there's no easy night in that division. It's going to be wild. And I, I can't, there's going to be some really disappointed teams. I can tell you that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I can tell you this, there were some teams in the East that when this division alignment came out, were jockeying and backroom lobbying to try and get themselves into the central thinking that they'd have an easier time. It doesn't surprise me. So Pittsburgh won it out. I got it. Okay. So (laughs) if we focus in really quick, Frank, on the local team, a year ago, we sat here and I think we were a little bit more down on the flyers prospects going into the season than some others might have been. Um, you upset a lot of people. You, yeah. you, uh, you upset a lot right of people with, with, right uh, with, with what uh, some called Kevin Hayes slander. <laughs> and uh, very few people cited us back to that. Very strange. Strange how that works out. Um, when you look at this, we put this out to the people on Instagram and Facebook. Did the Flyers do enough to compete for a Stanley Cup this year? 69% of the respondents said, yes, they've done enough. From where you're sitting right now, looking at this macro view, knowing what you know, do you think the Flyers have done enough this offseason to legitimately contend for a Stanley Cup? I'm now sitting here trying to remind myself what exactly they did this, this offseason. Which is next to nothing. Other than, I mean, Eric Gustafson, really, right? Right. That was and it. So you lost... had Niskanen retire. Right. Yep. Lost Niskanen. You kept Brian Elliott. Mm-hmm. And you're yep. hoping that Nolan Patrick, that Phil Myers, Nolan that Patrick. Phil Myers is going to be a top pair defenseman that Nolan Patrick is going to have his head on straight. Right. No migraines, or, or not even head on straight, just like skating. Like, yeah. are you functional and upright? Um, and then you've got, yeah, I mean, you're hoping that the rest of your guys that you have, Joel Farabee can take another step forward that Oscar Lindblom comes back and is fully healthy and gives you the type of production that he had before he fell ill. It's I like, I liked where the flyers were when they finished off. I just felt like they were missing some juice. And I don't know if part of that is just due to Travis Konechny and the way his playoffs went. Like he's, he's such a big engine player for this team. Did they, were they missing something when he wasn't as engaged in the playoffs? And I don't know. I would say my answer would be, I, I don't think that they've done enough um, to contend for a Stanley cup. I, I like the patience that Chuck Fletcher has though, that I don't know that there was anything on the market this summer, this off season. I keep saying summer, this off season that really made you want to jump at anything. So at the same time, like, I don't think there's any criticism due. Like, I think he just held course and said, look, there was nothing that was really getting me excited. So didn't really need to jump at it. Um, I think they're in fine position. Like, I think they're going to be, they're going to be squarely in the mix and it's all going to depend on really how that division goes. Like I, I, I could just as easily see them being in the top two in the division as I could see them being like on the fringe of the playoffs 
depending on how this goes. Would a Patrick Line move have changed the calculus for you? Assuming that it, you would have had to part with one of your younger forwards that you might not want to get rid of. So you'd think like a Konechny, maybe a Lindblom, probably a top prospect like a Morgan Frost, maybe one of either Phil Myers or Travis Sanheim. Would that have changed things for you? Or do you think that the ceiling of the team is more or less the same if that kind of a deal had gone down? It depends on who you were giving up on defense. That That's really what it comes down to for me is like, so much of your team is built on your back end. And I actually really like what the Flyers have. Like, I don't think the nice thing about what the Flyers have on their back end is that it's really steady. I mean, you've got your Provorov here, but the drop off from one to six isn't, it's not enormous. You've got three really steady pairs. And I think when you look at taking one or one of those pieces, especially a significant one out, then including a connect me, I get that scoring is the end all be all. It's the name of the game. It's, you know, it's so difficult to score, but what are you getting? Can you bank on the consistency of Patrick Wine? If he's going to score 47, then I'm like, huh, maybe, but if he's scoring 32 or 35, then that's a different story. So it's hard to say, but I would say in this case, given the, the sort of cap gymnastics that would come with, let's say Patrick Line does have a 47 goal season to pay him somewhere between nine and $10 million for the following year, it would have to essentially be dollars in and dollars out. And that's, I think the calculation that the flyers made in the off season when they were in conversation and not to say that it's totally dead, who knows, but when they were in conversation with the Jets, the thinking was, we've got to move that salary now because there's no guarantee otherwise that we'll be able to afford it, especially in an environment that we know is going to be flat cap-wise for the next number of years. Well, Frank, good stuff as always. Keep up, uh, keep up the great work. I, I love the fact that everybody got a kick out of my uh, – when you put, when you had that whole uh, thing with the Coyotes and then I put you could take the <laughs> – you could take the the reporter out of Philly, but you can't take the Philly out of the reporter. I thought that was well. It's it's funny because that's what some people were texting me. They were like, they were saying like, oh, the Philly must have came out in for a second. I'm like, it never really went anywhere. I've just done a good job of keeping it all bottled up. I love I love the fact I that I just that save was... it for I just save it for when I'm at home instead of on Twitter. <laughs> It was good stuff. But Frank, listen, we really appreciate it. It's always great talking to you, always great catching up and and getting uh, a real insider's intake, uh, insight into the league and, and how things are going. Uh, you have a great holiday, uh, you and your family, um, and Happy New Year. And uh, hopefully at some point we'll be able to see you at a rink uh, in 2021. That would be amazing. Yeah, you two guys have a great Christmas and Happy New Year. And all the best in 2021. I'm hoping it looks a lot different than this year did. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. May your Thanks old again, fashions Frank. be strong and your convictions in this great sport even stronger. And may your podcast be a lot quieter now that I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Frank. Thanks, Frank. <laughs> there he is, ladies and gentlemen. Frank Saravalli. You know him. You love him. TSN Zone. A local guy who goes and makes it big time. It brings a tear to your eye. 
It really does. Uh, he's, uh, he does great. He does great work. He really does great work. And the fact is, is that you know we sat here as hockey people for years saying Bob McKenzie, Darren Drager, you know they're the guys in in Canada. Well, guess what? You know McKenzie's retired. You know he's sort of semi-retired now. Frank right. is replacing him in in a lot of ways at TSN. So Frank Saravalli is that guy. Um, so when you see something tweeted out from him, you, you know it's coming from somewhere legit. And that's why Which it's, is, it's really good stuff. Anyway, that's why we're always happy to bring him here. Yeah. On to Snow the Goalie, the Only Flyers podcast. So uh, we did get some questions. We had some concerns that came in from people. I want to bounce them off of you. Um, okay. Because I I have to be honest. I, you know, a year ago we sat here. And, and like I said before, I think the, the general tone of the conversation was more negative than what some other people might have said about the team. And we try to be kind of grounded and, and a little bit more level-headed than some other shows, uh, than some other other people might be. Um, I do agree with Frank that this team isn't necessarily right there in that top two of the conference discussion. And I think it would take a lot. And I think things might change depending on what Tampa has to do uh, to become cap compliant. That's going to hurt. You would figure that in some way, shape, or form, asset-wise, it's going to end up hurting. And and then maybe by virtue of not only them, but I, I believe Toronto's also quite a bit over. Washington is also over and needs to replace Lundqvist, who um, Frank mentioned is out for the season at least with a heart condition that was discovered. We hope uh, all's well with him. You know, it's it's one thing when somebody's a, a player on a rival team, and then you know you think of them as a human being. And yeah. Lundqvist is a, a very highly respected guy. The, the top the top part of this conference could theoretically change once well there, there's a lot of good cap team, compliant there's a lot of good teams that are over the cap right now it's not it's, it's yeah. Tampa Vancouver St. Louis Toronto Washington Vegas Winnipeg Edmonton I mean uh, Edmonton's not I mean they're whatever but I mean but still I mean you're talking about these are all playoff teams that are currently still over the cap. Even Arizona, I guess if you want to count them, they were. Well, I mean, you even have four, yeah, Calgary, Dallas, Montreal, and Carolina all have less than a million dollars in cap space. And you yeah. know how important that can end up being, especially when you figure in the, the way that they're going to have to do the, the, the cap gymnastics to get around uh, being able to, to utilize some of their taxi squad players and such like that. There, there is some movement that, ha- that exists, but assuming that these teams don't get totally gutted, I don't see the Flyers as the top two team. But to Frank's point, like maybe there wasn't that move out there that really does raise right. the Flyers ceiling to that point. So I'm not saying that I fault the team on this. Like last year, I screeched and I yelled and I got ripped on Reddit for saying that I was being whiny about them not doing anything. The Flyers didn't do anything out of the box this offseason, but I'm not faulting Chuck Fletcher because I don't know if there was really anything there to be made. A Patrick Line deal aside, and we've talked about that value in the past that the ask might have been a lot more than than what had been publicly discussed on well, many I th- a show or I many think an what, article. I think what Frank was pointing out, and I think this is something that we can kind of you know dive into a little bit here, um, is that Frank pointed out that the way that it was looked at is it had to be money, you know, money out for money in, right? So yep. knowing line A has got one year left and then you have to pay him and you're probably going to have to pay him in that $9 million range what kind of money was going to have to go out. So you were going to have to figure out a way to get $9 million plus a prospect or a draft pick or something, you know, get to the sweetener. Um, 
what kind of money was going to go back to Winnipeg that they would have wanted. So if you say, if you say Konechny, well, that's five and a half. Yep. Does, does Sanheim get you there at 3.2? Not quite. I mean, he gets, he gets you close, gets you close, but not quite. And then it's a, then it's what a minimum salary guy. Uh, so, so what I, what I said, what I said to you, Sam Moran, let me, let me throw you, uh, the high upside prospect who we actually are pulling for. I think everybody in the organization and that that covers the team, you know, really wants to pull for Sam Moran. So I'm not throwing a a jab at him. I certainly wouldn't do that. He's got about what, 20 inches on me and probably about 30 inches on the reach. So, uh, I'm not trying to swing it at Sam Moran. Yeah. Um, but what if it wasn't connect me? And what if it was, you know, a younger forward, like a Farabee or a Frost, and that the big money going out was on defense? And what if it was, and what if the, Winnipeg wanted Provorov? Is that rhetorical or are you actually asking me? I'm actually asking that question, Russ. It's not rhetorical at all. Because I think that is ultimately what Chuck Fletcher had to weigh. And I think losing Niskanen really, really prevented it. And look, I wouldn't do that trade. I would never have traded Provorov for Line A, even if Niskanen were still here for another year. Uh, uh, no, I'm out. That that you pushed it too far for me. But you know, we kind of talked around it a little bit a couple months ago, and um, I know Frank kind of just talked around around it a little bit. But I'll, I'll say it. You know that that was that was part of the discussion. Um, and Chuck Fletcher, I think, wisely decided not to do it. But that doesn't mean that the thought wasn't there. doesn't mean he didn't think about it. Would you? So we talked about this and talked around this for quite a long time. And I, I remember saying to you initially uh, when you told me that I, I, I said absolutely not. And then I did think about it for a second, and and I need people to kind of go on this journey with me a little bit, okay? Let's act like we're on The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. Go on this journey. Let me speak my truth. So I could say that from a a purely objective standpoint, and this this takes out all emotion, this takes out um, interactions with players, that takes all of this out and and just looks at it from a macro perspective. I am not 100% sold yet that Ivan Provorov with whether it's Phil Myers, Shane Gostisbehere, Justin Braun. I don't know who the top pair is going to be. We assume that it's going to be Myers, but regardless, I am not 100% sold on the idea that the Ivan Provorov we get is going to be the same Ivan Provorov we had a year ago. And I said many times on this show and on other people's shows as well that I think the, the biggest miss here and the thing that I truly did expect the Flyers to get in on before the season started was another veteran to pair top pair minutes with Ivan Provorov on either a one or two year deal. Now that free agent wasn't really available outside of like Petrangelo. Um, what's his nuts? Krug from Boston. Maybe you could have tried to make a, a, a case for. I think that that could be a miss. And the reason I say it is, I think what we saw two years ago when we had a very up and down Ivan Provorov was a guy who knew he couldn't always rely on the other guy on ice. Matt Niskanen being a steady two-way defenseman allowed him to play a little bit more free and play without thinking and overthinking. I've said this before. I do worry that if Phil Myers is the guy who ends up on that top pair, the, the very small 
um, sample size that we had statistically last year wasn't great. That doesn't mean that that's going to be indicative of what will happen. I do worry that if that doesn't work, and then the thought is, all right, well, we'll put Shane Gosses Bear on the on the top pair because there was magic that those two shared. What was it two ish years ago? It is possible. I mean, if they found success success once before, it doesn't mean that it can't happen again. But we've seen with Shane Gosses Bear, and also I think we will see this uh, up close and personal with Eric Gustafson. There is something about a guy who's more offensive minded that then creates a little bit of a, a hesitancy in their partner, not being able to rely that their partner's getting back defensively. And then you start to see a guy overthinking. So this is my really long way and long winded answer to say that if you were guaranteeing me that Patrick Line is going to be a near 50 goal scorer every year for the next three or four years, or he's in that 45 to 50 plus range, I think you would really have to consider it. We can't guarantee that though. So no, I wouldn't have made the move without having that assurance. And it's not an assurance that you can get. I do worry. I think Ivan Provorov is probably the most committed guy on the roster to improving himself, improving his game and working like a, like a workhorse, like a, like a Roy Halladay did for the Phillies and honing his craft. I do not question the heart. I do not question the dedication. I question the potential to overthink and feel like he has to drag his partner along. And if I see at the start of the season that things are looking good, we're 15 games into the season and there's no fear. And Ivan Provorov looks like the Ivan Provorov was next to Matt Niskanen under no circumstances. Do I ever entertain training that trading that guy? Because that is, the cornerstone, that is the guy who you build the entire defensive core around and you are 100% sold and solid that that is the guy. If he falters, if we're looking at the guy from two years ago that was a roller coaster, there might be a little bit of doubt left in the mind of Chuck Fletcher of, should I have pulled the trigger on that deal? It's fair, Russ, but I'm of the mindset that I think that Provorov is a number one defenseman for a long time. And he's going to be a eventually a um, Norris Trophy candidate guy um, in this league. Um, so I would rather that. I think that's more important than a scoring winger um, in in the game today. Um, obviously, you work from the goal out, goal line out, right? So goaltending, defense, then up front. Um, and there will always be talented players who can score who can skate with the puck, who can make great passes and things like that. Those kinds of players, there's more of an abundance of. And while right now the Flyers could really use a sniper, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that they couldn't use a Patrick Line. I don't think that the the swapping of Provorov and a young forward and potentially a draft pick for a guy who, even though he's only 22 years old, has shown a little bit of inconsistency over his first few seasons in the league. I, I wouldn't make that risk, so I wouldn't do it. And I, I and I'm glad that Chuck hasn't done it to this point. Um, but it was interesting that that Frank also said that the uh, that's not to say that that trade conversation is over. That's something that could very well be broached again sometime before the, the before the April 12th deadline, which is less than four months away, right? Yeah, I mean the reason that I put the qualifier of the 50 goal score on is because while there are guys who can score. 
since 2010, there have only been eight seasons. There have only been eight guys who have done it. And four of them have been Alex Ovechkin. So it's a rare commodity, at least in today's game, to have a guy who can pot 50 goals. But with that, and, and I also just want to make sure that I clarify this point as well. You couldn't make it right now. You couldn't make that trade today because no. I don't think you don't have the defensive depth that you would need. You don't have the veterans right. that you would need to assume that role. If you were going to make that move and a veteran defenseman were to come back with line A, then maybe. But there's no way to do it now. The Matt Niskanen retirement threw things into a tizzy. I think if you wanted to be critical of the job the front office did this offseason, you would probably come back to the fact that Niskanen had mentioned uh, at the end of the bubble that he was very serious about retiring and that it doesn't look like, at least from the outside perspective, that there was much of a contingency plan put in place. Unless well, I the think belief that, was, you, unless the belief was that organizationally there's enough depth and there was enough to rely on and to believe in that you didn't need to have an Iskinen replacement. Maybe well, that's I think what it was they two, chose. It was two things. Um, uh, one, I think that they felt that Niskanen would change his mind. I think that was first and foremost. I think that they looked at it and said, "Well, it was just it was a tough year, you know, with the break and come back and." You know, you had to ramp it back up to play for a quick playoff and whatever, blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, we who knows when we're going to be back again. And so maybe he just needs, a, you know, time off, spend some time at home and then be like, yeah, I want to get back at it next year. And I think that's what they honestly thought was going to happen. And then when it didn't, I think it kind of thing that not that it caught them by surprise, but it, I think that they thought that it was going to be a different outcome. Um, and you're right. I think they believe that they have good depth on the blue line coming. I mean, let's see what Jaeger Zamula looks like, right? Um, you know, you got Cam York a couple seasons away. Um, you know, so they, they have some, and then you got the, the Swedish kids that they drafted that are, that are, you know, coming. This is, this is a strength of this organization. Probably their strength, the number one strength of the Flyers is the depth of talent um, in prospects on the blue line. Not to say that that you know their defense is their NHL level defense is okay. I mean it's not great, but it's also not bad. So it's kind of middle of the middle of the road with guys still developing and, and could eventually be better. Um, but their depth in, in terms of prospects. So you could be right in that regard. You know, let's see what we have, and that maybe if a couple of these guys hit, and we could tell. Yep, they're going to be good in the NHL. They're going to be really good in the NHL. Then maybe you have that abundance of NHL talent that you can trade from to add up front. So patience being the, the, being the key. Let's also be real. This is a season that some organizations might put an asterisk next to anyway. Uh, even though the idea here is to try to be steadfast and resolute in the belief that this is a normal season that it's going to go by normal ish rules and it's still going to have uh, the ultimate prize of the stanley cup rewarded at the end awarded rewarded at the end it's still not an 82 game season and it's still being done in a way that's not in line with the way that things typically go you've got realigned divisions you have these quasi bubbles, quarantine zones when you're on the road. It's not a normal season. And maybe part of the equation that that has been done by some of these front offices is it wasn't worth taking a swing for something for this abbreviated season. 
you do this more as an evaluation of where your organization stands. You hope that the AHL is able to put together a season um, that you're able to get more film on some of your younger prospects, get them some actual legitimate playing time. And then you reevaluate for the 2021, 22 season. Maybe that's what ends up happening. Uh, I do want to throw this out to you. Uh, we put this out on Instagram and Facebook at snow, the goalie, facebook.com slash snow, the goalie asking, uh, what is the 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 biggest issue that you have with the team? The biggest concern that you have with the Flyers going into this season? Here are a couple of the uh, the ones that came in. JD Kent said, uh, "When can I see them play in person?" It's not going to uh, probably March. It's March fair. Uh, I don't. I'm not certain that it's March. I think you're looking April probably. Uh, maybe playoffs is 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 probably what I would say. I would say playoffs. Are we allowed in the arena? Do you think Sixers yes. have allowed Sixers have allowed the reporters in sitting at long tables spread all around the arena thus far through the preseason? Will we be allowed in for game one? I'm asking um, you, do you think do, do you think that the writers and media will be allowed into the arena or do you think this is going to be something where we're going to be waiting a month or two until we're allowed in? Uh, I would say that. um we're, we'll be allowed in right away. Okay. Yeah, uh, I do. Dave Bo 53 says his biggest concern is the Islanders. Uh, Trevor Harris, T Harris, 18 says COVID and the power play are his biggest concern going into the season. Yeah. Uh, um, I think, I think you're going to see, I think you're going to see slight changes to the power play, but I, the talent is there. The town it's, it's all, it's incumbent on those players to score. I mean, those same. This is something we discussed back in the playoffs. Whenever he was like, "Oh, fire the coaches! You know, what are they doing? They're doing the same thing, expecting to get back." The thought process is: is this? These guys have been successful as power play players in the past. The fact that they're not performing right now is not a flaw in design, but more so a flaw in execution. So, with that said. You have to put that on the players right now. Is there a scenario where we see Eric Gustafson quarterbacking PP1 and Shane Gossesbear on PP2? I, I think Gustafson's going to be PP1, um, but I'm not certain that you're going to see Gossesbear PP2. I don't think they're going to. I don't think you're going to take Provorov off of the power play entirely after he was a guy that had more goals on the power play than any defenseman in the NHL. Have you come around to the concept of Elaine Vigneault conceptually putting in both Eric Gustafson and Shane Gostaspare into the same lineup? Or do you think that this is still a situation where you say these are two guys that are of similar mentalities, being an offensive-minded defenseman, and you simply cannot risk having both of those guys in a lineup in a game? I think you could do it. I don't think you could do it consistently. I mean, you could do it for a couple games here, a couple games there. You want to try and, you know, jump, jump, start some offense. You know, I, I wouldn't mind trying it again. <laughs> you get, you get to play the, you get to play the New Jersey devils seven times. Right. I mean, you could probably yeah. do it, do it in those games. Um, maybe even a little bit against Buffalo. So, I mean, so I think there are games in the regular season where you can do that. I just don't think that there are, I don't think you could do it on a regular basis. Look, it kind of makes sense in some of the seven defenseman games, right? 
Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, look, if you want to, maybe these guys will prove us wrong, Russ, you know, maybe, maybe we sit here and, and you're looking at Goss's bear. Now he's had a lot of time to heal uh, off of his injuries that we, you know, that were bothering him through March. Um, he's basically going to have had nine months off, you know, maybe he's back to being that kind of, you know, in the, in the best shape of his life, but we've heard this before. So that's why we remain skeptical, but maybe, maybe, I don't know why you're saying we, I have never doubted (laughs) the ability, Uh, but no, but maybe this is the time when he proves us wrong, you know, and and he comes back, goes back to being the guy that everybody loved when he first came up. Right. So who knows? Um, I remain skeptical on it, but we'll see. DK Cookie on uh, 37 on Instagram said Couturier's health and Phil Myers' role. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think Couturier will be fine. I mean, he's a warrior. He plays through injuries, right? I mean, we've seen it. Um, uh, as far as Phil Myers, I mean, that's the to me, that's the big question. Can he be a top pair defenseman? Uh, if he can, if he can play alongside of, of Provorov and, and not, and, you know, and, and be a really good guy, you know, partner there, a really good number two. Um, I think that the rest of the of the defensive lineup kind of falls into place where it was a year ago at this time uh, when they were coming back from that, you know, that trip and, and, and really started to play some good hockey, I guess, you know, in early January. Um, I think that if Myers can fit with Provorov, I think you're going to see the team play really well, you know, further down the lineup defensively and, and with heart and goal. Um, I, I think it'll be a good, it'll be, that will put the flyers towards the top of the Eastern division. If Phil Myers does not fit there, you'd have to tinker and move guys around and, and not get any kind of continuity on your blue line. I think that could push the flyers further down in the Eastern division. I think Frank is, is spot on that they could be a top two team or they could be fighting for the fourth playoff spot. Right. I mean, so it's it's interesting to see how this is going to play out because I I, I do I don't know if I can make a prediction just yet I want to see what all the the flurry of moves that happen um, in the NHL over the course of the next couple weeks Um, but I'll I'll give you a prediction before January 13th and um, I, I I can see right now I can see myself picking the Flyers to finish anywhere from first or second to fourth or fifth in the division. So uh, a lot has to, a lot has to still be determined and we'll, we'll see, we'll see how that plays out. We got Dan Bray 91, who I think might be one of our favorite Scotsmen, Danny yes, Branion. I think, yeah, I, b- I believe so yeah. says uh, goalie depth, which wow. I don't actually think is as big of a concern. Oddly enough, flyers have a number of solid to solid enough third, fourth options organizationally that they could theoretically use over short spurts. And they still have arguably one of the best backup goalies in the entire league right now in Brian Elliott, ready to step in whenever needed when Carter Hart needs. So, a break. so I think what Danny Brandon's concern is, is that, you know, all teams are carrying three goalies, right? Mm-hmm. So who's the third goalie that the flyers are going to carry. Are you going to carry a guy like Alex Lyon who has some NHL experience um, who can fill in in a pinch or, do you go with a guy like Kirill Stamenko, who is probably your next guy on the list? Um, certainly, as he's fourth um, on your depth chart. Does he get, does he stay with the team, or do, you know, do you want to get him playing just playing some AHL games first? I think Lyon is probably the guy, and that doesn't excite me. Um, not to say that 
you know, Alex Lyon's a bad player. He's not, but he is what he is. I mean, he's an, he's a good AHL goalie who can spot start a couple times in the NHL, but nothing more than that. Um, so th- that's probably where they'll go and try and get Ustamenko up, to, you know, up to speed as quickly as he can once the AHL starts in February. But I think ultimately by the end of the season, if we're talking playoffs in May, um, I wouldn't be surprised if Ustamenko is the guy that's in on the playoff roster if the Flyers are there as the third goalie. One of the other names that's typically thrown out there is Felix Sandstrom. Um, Alexander Appiard, who writes over uh, for The Athletic, put out earlier this morning that as of right now, Kasha, Hergberg, uh, Maxim Shushko are all staying in Europe until the AHL starts. So the assumption is that both Sandstrom and Herman Rubsov are likely also going to stay over there as well until the AHL season starts up. So and you would think a, that that would probably thing. eliminate Sandstrom from contention for one of those, uh, like I don't know, the fourth, fourth or so on yeah, the depth well, chart. Yeah, well, so so the thing with Sandstrom is that he was originally ahead of Ustamenko, and I think you know because if you look at the beginning of last year, Ustamenko was playing in the ECHL for Reading while Sandstrom was playing for the Phantoms, um, and then it ended up. You know, they ended up not flipping, but, you know, they ended up being together for a little bit. And um, I think Ustamenko has kind of progressed a little bit faster than Sandstrom. That's not to say Sandstrom's a bust by any stretch of imagination. He's not. It's just that he's adapt, taking a little bit longer to adapt to North American hockey than uh, than Ustamenko is. And you got to remember, it's a big difference for goalies playing on the smaller rink, right? Angles are, are a lot different. And the way you play is a lot different than it is to play in Europe. Um, so I think that that's, that's one, that's part of it. Um, I think Sandstrom could eventually, uh, I think he's going to get some time in the AHL too, with the Phantoms. Um, it's just a matter of the, I guess the question would be, you know, do the Flyers look at it and say, let's carry Alex Lyon as our third goalie. He's not going to play anywhere. He's not going to play for the Phantoms. He's just going to be our third, our taxi squad goalie. And we get Ustamenko and Sandstrom playing, whatever shortened season the AHL plays and, you know, they're splitting that time down there and whichever one is better is going to be on our roster for the playoffs as the third goalie. And it's likely Ustamenko only because he's ahead of Sandstrom at this point. Seahawk 38 on Instagram says, can the young forwards produce enough to win? That's a great and question. And then let's, pa- and let's pair that with uh, <laughs> fart in the wind. <laughs> The Sorry. Yeah. So fart in the wind. There's a bunch of underscores in there as well. Um, asks or, or says Nolan Patrick's head. So if we put together young Fords being able to score, and I think we could still consider Nolan Patrick. He's still, I, what is he? 22. Yeah. Uh, Nolan Patrick, you, you figure. We still don't know. Hey, he fits into that group with the young. I mean, he, he's, young yeah, he just, yeah. he just turned 22. So yeah, uh, those um, who want to write off Nolan Patrick as a uh, as a bust, you're probably uh, early to that party. Yeah, no. Um, How does he factor in? It's it's a great question, and and I think so. This is this is where uh, you know the difference between being a top team in the division and a, a team fighting for a playoff spot kind of comes into play. The Flyers have a lot of ifs, but so does everybody else. It's not like the Flyers are the only team in the NHL with ifs, while everybody else has certainties. Okay. Um, it's it's a matter of whose ifs come to f- come you know 
come to fruition and which ones fall off. Um, if these flyers forwards play to the level of their, you know, prospect uh, prospectability, they'll be a top team in the division. If they don't, Chuck Fletcher is likely going to have to make trades and, and, you know, add some veteran, a veteran or two to try and get this team, you know, over the hump and into the playoffs and make that push again. Um, and they're probably then, you know, third, fourth, fifth in the division. I don't think they're lower than that. Um, I think they're better than the Penguins. Um, I think Washington's an interesting situation now, you know, with losing Lundqvist, that that does change things because now they don't really have a second goalie, let alone yeah. a third goalie. Um, so I think that the Flyers are probably still ahead of both of those teams. Um, but I look at the, I look at Boston, and I say no, they're not quite there. Um, and I look at the Islanders, and they say you know that team. Let's see, let's see how they look to start this this season. But if they play now in January, like they were playing in August, they're a tough team. They're, they're a top end team, right. in that division. Um, and, and I, the Rangers, I just, there's just a lot to like about them. There's a lot of excitement. You add Lef, uh, Alexi Lafreniere uh, to that group. I mean, you're, and you're talking about a team that could be uh, really, really good with the young goalie Shesterkin there. Um, they could be a team that kind of comes out of nowhere and, 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 kind of like the Flyers did last year and get to the top of the division. You're like, well, where did this come from? And, and that's, that's the kind of young talent they have. Um, so I think that the Flyers could fit anywhere from two to five in this division. And, and it'll, a lot will depend on the next few weeks and how things shake out in the NHL. Last one that we have here is from Paul F 27, who says veteran scoring. Well, obviously um, you're not winning it, look, if, if if Drew and Voracek and Couturier and Van Riemsdyk and even, you know, Konechny is now in his, in, in a, into a fifth season, right? Like, if these guys aren't scoring goals, you ain't winning games. So yeah. they got to score. There's no doubt they got to score. Um, do they have to necessarily carry the team? You would not, hope necess- not. not necessarily. Not necessarily. I mean, the the team depth could be good enough to to carry you through a stretch where Giroux doesn't score for five six games, where Vorchek doesn't score for five six. Games. Like you know, you you could be a deep enough team, like they were last year at times, to be successful in spite of the fact that your star players aren't putting the puck in the net. But over the long haul, I don't think that I don't think that the Flyers will benefit from those guys continuing to decline. I think those guys have to bounce back somewhat, uh, especially in a shortened season. That's a 56 game season. I would just kind of caution people, I guess that if, if your big money vets aren't scoring and some of your younger guys or your transitional guys, like I would say fifth year in, I would say connect me still a, a transitional guy more than he's a vet, more than he's necessarily a, a super young player. Like I wouldn't put him in the same kind of breath as I would like a, a Joel Farabee. If, if your team is struggling because some of your higher paid vets aren't able to put the puck in the net, I would say that you start to get a little bit worried that it's an indictment on some of the younger players for not being able to pick up the slack. At some point you have to start to turn the page. Like at some point the onus has to fall on some of your, your younger or your transitional players to kind of make their, 
the most of their opportunity and to make their presence felt. And if you're going to go into a season, you know, banking on Claude Giroux going out and, and having, you know, take whatever the percentages would have been, but like something in the vicinity of a, I don't know, like a 90 point season. And remember, I'm saying relative to the amount of games that are going on. I don't know what that's going to end up looking like. Was that like 70 or something, 65 or something in a, in a truncated season? If, if the goal here is to try to get that kind of production out of Claude Giroux, I think you're going to end up being disappointed. I think if you're looking for anything, you know, close to that from Jake Voracek this season, I think you're, you're probably expecting something that's also not a reality. And so if those guys are able to go out and in this shortened season, capture some magic, get hot, and that helps propel your team to a place where they're getting a more positive mindset going into games, they're building confidence, and that unleashes that next wave of your younger slash transitional players into feeling solid in their roles and contributing. And then when you're Voracek's, when you're Giroux's, when you're JVR's, when even you're Sean Couturier's, your Kevin Hayes's aren't netting the points that you would hope hopefully at that point some of those other players would be able to pick up the slack the team is deep enough like the the funny thing here is if nolan patrick is able to play and to me i've said this for over a year and a half now the thing isn't just getting him back on the ice it's getting him on the ice and keeping him available because that would then signal that he's back to a much healthier better off position in terms of living as a person which is obviously more important than him living as a hockey player. And if he's able to live in that kind of a space where things are manageable, and now all of a sudden he is available, the ceiling on this team, I would say, jumps up another level. Because having a former number two overall pick, who for the most part was a consensus guy as a top two pick, at least by the pundits, having that kind of guy out there as your 3C, and hopefully you would you would hope that over the next year or two pushes into that 2C category which i think was the hope all along and even with the signing of kevin hayes the the hope had been that maybe eventually nolan patrick would push him for that 2C spot that would kind of signal that this team is really on the way to getting into that top 2 in the conference conversation because if there's one thing that i think has really hurt this team over the last couple of seasons it's been that 3C 4C issue just kind of perpetuating it's it's almost like that wheel just keeps spinning around a spoke breaks out they jam something in there for stretches of games it kind of works then it falls out and you try to replace it again if you were able to actually have a nolan patrick as your as your you know locked in rock solid 3c at 22 years old growing with the rest of a young forward core all of a sudden things for this team's outlook for the next five six years start to look even better than they already do, which in fairness is pretty good. That's a, that's a diatribe there, Russ. There you go. Yeah. I did want to point something out. Cause we brought up Nolan Patrick. Yeah. And there was a and case you talked, of, and you talked for nine minutes. I, uh, I was alerted by a listener that there was a case of podcast plagiarism. Oh, boy. that occurred. Oh, uh, here we go. Podcast plagiarism is a very, well, it's a very serious offense. Mm. And there was a there was a person who we are, I would say, cordial with, who we have in the past lauded as being a nice person, 
a solid hockey writer, somebody who does a good job for their outlet. And this person went on to another podcast and told the story of the selection of Nolan Patrick and the fact that some scouts might not have been in line with Ron Hextall's thinking. And that ultimately Ron Hextall wanted a forward because he believed that the organizational depth that defenseman was solid enough. And he overruled the scouts and he took Nolan Patrick. Now I am not at Liberty to say right now who that person was because this was brought up on Twitter. And I know that this person and some of the other people associated with this person's uh, show listen to this show. So I will once again, I will extend the timeline a week. This person needs to atone. They will be given a week from today. I will give an extension through the Christmas spirit, through the Hanukkah spirit, through the Kwanzaa spirit, through the winter solstice spirit, the spirit of the season to come clean, cite your sources and declare that you heard it on Snow the Goalie, the only Flyers podcast. Anthony, yeah, as, Russ. The great, as the great Joaquin Phoenix said in the movie, uh, movie Gladiator, am I not merciful? Am I not merciful? That is something you are. Okay. Is that fair? Are you okay with extending it a week? I know that you wanted heads to roll. I'm trying to talk you down. Are you okay with it? Can we can we extend uh, this person's uh sure give them another week? Okay. Yes. All right. Yeah. I'm glad. Um one last thing. So we got another comment in here from a listener, and I wanted to get to it really quickly because this is something we need to think about. And I want to solicit the the thoughts, the hopes, the opinions, and ultimately the alcoholic uh not the alcoholics among us, the those who might consume a beverage or two while watching games. Uh, the listener's name is, uh, I believe it's Jigal or Jiggle. I don't know. It's one or the other. I even asked how to say it, and I still am unsure, even after receiving a DM about it. Who asks us on Twitter, with 16 mind-numbing games against the Islanders and Devils, can Snow the Goalie, the only Flyers podcast, come up with some sort of drinking game for these specific contests? Thanks in advance. So we want you to submit your thoughts, anything that you think should fit into the Islanders slash Devils drinking game for those 16 mind-numbing games that we will be treated to. I don't know season. why the Islanders would be mind-numbing. Those games were pretty intense in the playoffs. They can turn things into a slog if they choose. I think that might yeah, be it. Yeah, but those games are still pretty good. They are. It's, good. it's pretty good hockey. Um, but okay. So we need people to work on that. You can send the ideas over to us. Of course, you can email us, snowthegoalie at gmail.com. You can DM them to us on Instagram and on Twitter at snow, the goalie, facebook.com slash snow, the goalie, Anthony, you knew I couldn't let you go this week of Christmas without hitting you with one final edition of no, the goalie. Oh yes. I was going to bring Frank Saravalli in on this one, but then I decided, you know what? I didn't, I didn't want to trip him up. I didn't, but I, I, I you have, have no a, problem a, tripping me up. That's yeah, because it's easy. But I, I figured I'd give you a softball. In in the Christmas spirit, I would give you something that I, I'm pretty sure you're going to know. Are you ready? As, as I'll ever be. <clears throat> the longest shutout streak by a single goalie is how many games and who was the goalie? 
Well, I know the the goalie was is um, Brian Boucher. Uh, I know that, um, and it was done uh, with Phoenix, I believe, was where he was when that happened. I believe it was over. It was five games, but it might have gone into a sixth. Um, I know he went five consecutive. Well, I, I, I think it was four shutout. I was part of. I think it was part of six games four of them that he got credit for shutouts and it was like the end of one game four shutouts and then part of the sixth game. and then he got torched i think in that sixth game if i remember correctly um but am i right is that is that it anthony yeah happy birthday to you buddy <laughs> i'm sitting at the piano that's great piano skill out of me you got it right Anthony, yeah. yes, indeed. Former Flyer Brian Boucher yeah. has recorded the longest consecutive shutout streak by a goalie in five games. It started December 31st of 2003. It lasted all the way until January 9th of 2004. During that span, Boucher, who had started the season as a third-string netminder, was absolutely unstoppable for the Phoenix Coyotes. Along the way, he shut out the Kings, the Stars, the Hurricanes, the Capitals, and the Wild. The streak ended 332 minutes and one second into a January 11th clash against the Atlanta Thrashers. There you go. Who I think scored like six goals off of him. Nope. That was the only goal of the game. Was it really? Was it the next game? I don't know, but it was a first period goal to Randy Robitaille. Randy Robitaille. How about that? Another former flyer, by the way. So there you go. I decided to lobby a softball. And like I've heard that you sometimes do at a Delco uh, softball field, you hit it out of the park, my friend. No, well done. Th- that's been a while since I hit one out of the park in Delco softball. But um... sign them up for your team, ladies and gents. If you're out there and you have a <laughs> you have a team, by all means, sign up Anthony Sanfilippo. He'll crush. All right. Anthony, I think uh, I think that wraps up the. By show the way, by the way, just what? so you know, mm-hmm. that's the modern record. Okay. Oh no! Uh, are there, you there flip were. This on me? What's are you that? Flip this on, are you going to flip this on me and like have me try to guess? No, but I will tell you that in the twenties there were two goalies who had longer streaks. Really? Yeah. A guy by the name of uh, oh, hold on, George, hold on. George Hainsworth. Well, I had from to look Montreal up, Canadians. Like, okay. okay. Uh, went 34305 in 1929. Okay. And then a guy named Alec Connell for the Ottawa. Oh, Sen- big fan of Alec Connell. I have his jersey. Uh, for the Ottawa Senators in 1928, went 460 minutes and 49 seconds. That's insane. By the way, the next closest after Bush. Is this hockey reference? Is that what you're doing right no, now? No, no. The next closest after Boosh. Modern. Right, give, me, give me a clue. Give me a clue. Modern record. Modern Do record. Do I have any shot of getting this right? Yes. Okay. You have a you have a humongous chance of getting this right. No! It was Ilya? <laughs> Ilya Brizgala. So for the Flyers. Me. For the Flyers in 2012. 249 minutes and 43 seconds. It's the second longest of uh, post-expansion era. So Boosh this, and then Briz. This is season I see hockey puck. Like beach ball, flying at head. <laughs> I catch out. I throw to beautiful people in stance. Yes. So there you go. Well, that was fun. 
So this uh, marks the end of our episode. I don't know what episode number this is. You and I always disagree about the official tallying of episode numbers. I, we've got to be at 100 now, don't we? Oh, we are over 100. We never even acknowledged when we got to 100 oh. because, listen, 100, you know, while that is a milestone, we have many more to go. But unofficially, the tally is 100. This is episode number 106. 106 episodes of Snow the Goalie, the only Flyers podcast. I don't remember if that includes the stint that we did on ESPN Radio with Snow the Goalie Radio. It might, it might not. We might actually be closer to like 120. I don't know. We might be, we might not be. Doesn't really matter, does it? No. Uh, but that might be the last episode of 2020. I think it all depends on what next week looks like. Technically, the beginning of next week is what's still 2020. And then after that, we hit New Year's. When's New Year's? The following... I don't even know what a calendar looks like at this point. Uh, it's a week from Friday, New Year's. Yeah, we'll probably do one more episode in 2020. And then we will bring in the new year. We will get ourselves prepped and ready. Uh, we're hoping to announce a couple of things uh, at some point in the next few weeks. So we'll yeah, see. I, I would think I would think we would, I would think we would record next week, Russ, because I have a feeling that there's going to be some uh, moving and shaking in the in the NHL um, by this time next week. I mean, at this time next week, the seven teams who were not in the uh, playoff bubble in August will be starting their training camp. So um, I think there's going to be some news probably next week, and uh, we'll, we'll dive into it. And then in January, really hit the ground running uh, with a, looking at the Flyers uh, because I, I'm not certain that they're going to do much in the next seven days, but I think that there will be enough league-wide that we can do one more before the end of 2020. So make sure that in the meantime, you follow the show on any number of social media platforms. Of course, Instagram and Twitter at snow, the goalie, facebook.com slash snow, the goalie. You can find the written work that Anthony does and that I sometimes do over on crossingbroad.com. And uh, like I said, we're working on some other stuff. We'll see. We shall see my friends, but we're excited for the start of hockey. And don't forget the press row show will be coming back at some point in the season. Whether or not we're allowed in the arena to do the press row show remains to be seen. You know what my biggest concern is right now, Anthony? I shouldn't say this because you know that some of the people who listen to the show who have some power in the organization that might not like some of the things that you have to say, I don't want them to know this. But like, I kind of rely on a wired connection for the press row show. So if we're Wi-Fi only, the press row show might be a little bit hard to do in person. But we'll see. The Press Row Show will be back for pregame, first and second intermissions. So for Anthony, who you can find on Twitter and Instagram at AntSanPhilly, I'm Russ at Joy on Broad. Links to everything that we talk about and all the social media accounts can be found in the description of this episode. And if you're looking for some more hockey content as you get together with family and friends, either in person or on Zoom, Google, Facebook, whatever, you can go back in the archives. You can check out some of the interviews that we did over the summer. Craig Berube, Ken Hitchcock, Chris Pronger, Danny Briere, Mike Knubel. We had Poulin. We had Prop. In the past, we've had Ron Hextall, Bobby Clark, Paul Holmgren, among others. What's better to get ready for the hockey season than to go back in the archives and listen to some old episodes? You can find us on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Google Play Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcasts. And until next week, thanks for listening to Snow the Goalie, the only Flyers podcast. We'll talk to you next week.